You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. So we are going to talk about ICD-10. As you know, we aren't quite a year into the newest transition, and there are some changes that are going to be coming up, but I think it's also important to know where, if, where you're going, where you've been. So if we can actually start with the first slide here. First thing I want to tell you is I don't have any conflicts of interest to report. I'm not a coder. I am not a biller. But I have one other disclosure and one other confession. I love coding. I absolutely love coding. And I feel so much better telling you that now. I feel like we, uh, <laughs> we know each other so much better now. I love coding. This talk is not necessarily gauged towards any coders or any billers. This coding lecture is definitely gauged towards the provider, to being able to get a lot of pearls or tips to be the best coder that you can. So we're going to review the background on ICD-10. We're going to highlight some changes between ICD-9 and ICD-10. I'm also going to re-familiarize you with some of the code structure and the specificity. I want to give you some coding pearls, some common codes that we use in dermatology that I think you'll find helpful. I also want to tie it all in to make sure that everybody is familiar with modifiers, global periods, CPT, as a way to being able to use your ICD-10 codes to the best of your ability. I'm also going to make sure that you understand the actual components of EM coding, because EM coding is essentially how you're going to communicate to the insurance company exactly what you did, and writing that code is a big part of that. And finally, we're going to talk about what we know so far regarding ICD-10 implementation and try to talk about what the future holds. And my biggest objective is to at least have you appreciate, like, respect coding, and try to be the best coder that you can. So the big question I get when I talk about my love or my passion for coding is why is it so important? We all have EMR. We have so many of these record systems that are automatically populating what we do. Well, in this day and age, it's often seen more efficient to have the electronic medical record be able to put that code in there and populate what you did, whether it be with CPT or your EM code. But at the end of the day, the EMR system is not responsible for its build. You are. So you are really in, uh, responsible for making sure that you know exactly what's put in on your behalf. The EMR could overbill. Goodness forbid it could underbill. And the presence of your EMR really should not prohibit you from getting to know your billing coordinator. I know my billing coordinator by name. She gets a gift at the holidays. She gets a gift at the birthday. She gets a lot of thank yous. We work together really closely, not only on my behalf, but on behalf of other providers. And having that relationship will make it a lot easier for you to code to the best of your ability, but also have that resource to go to if you notice there are some trends and things that aren't going right. So this is a brief review how you come up with different components of your office visits. So your ICD, you're going to create that code based on your history and your physical exam. Your CPT procedure codes, as you know, that's where you do your procedures, whether it be your biopsy, your excisions. You're also going to be very often attaching modifiers. You're going to have to be aware of global periods when you're dealing with CPT. And then your level of service or your evaluation and management code really takes in that history, that physical, and also medical decision-making, which we'll be talking about in a moment. So when I first explained to some friends who aren't in the medical field and some family as well that I was going to be talking about ICD, they said, well, what is it? And I said, well, it's coding, and it's how we communicate to the insurance, what we did. They said, but no, no, really, what is it? And besides loving coding, I also love a bit of history. So I sat down and I looked into the history of ICD and actually found it to be pretty interesting. 
So it dates back to 1600, where that was first, the first time that the statistical study of disease was actually recognized. And Grant and De La Croix were the two names uh, that popped up quite uh, frequently in the history of ICD as being the ones that recognized this. Fast forward to 1800, William Farr recognized that where he was practicing medicine, from village to village, county to county, a lot of the same medical conditions that his co-providers were treating, they were using different terminology, they were using different logo, and there was causing a lot of confusion and, and logistical issues with that. So he recognized a need for a universal language to describe disease states. And as I wrote there, I won't uh, read it to you, but he had a pretty powerful quote about the importance and the need for an expeditious uh, universal language. And from this, two lists for disease classification were ultimately created. This list came about and eventually was the foundation for an international list of causes of death, which is interesting because this list only talks about death. You'll notice that it doesn't talk about disease states or chronic illness. They were uh, perceiving this as from a point of view of causes of death. Essentially, what's interesting is that first list became the foundation for what we know as ICD-1. This was created in Paris in 1900, and as we went through the 20s and 30s, ICD-2, 3, 4, and 5 were developed with little revisions at this meeting. As we got into the late 20s and into the 30s and into the 40s, they began to recognize a need not only for causes of death, but also disease. And this is where morbidity and mortality was actually first recognized, into the 40s where the United States, Canada, and the UK recognized that there was a need to be able to recognize these disease states and causes of death as separate, related, but absolutely separate. And then as you see throughout the 40s and the, uh, 40s and the 50s, the World Health Organization began classifying it. We started to see in 1948 ICD-6. And ICD-6 was really important because this was something that was seen as pivotal for research, disease tracking, epidemiological implications. So ICD-6 was really important. And through the 50s and 60s, we saw more changes, but with limited revisions. 1975 is important because of ICD-9. As we all know, we recently transitioned out of ICD-9. So 1975 was important because there was some changes in the code structure and more detail to a lot of the categories. And that brings us to where we are now. But ICD-10 was actually published in 1992. And then other countries around the world actually didn't start implementing it until the late 90s into 2000s. And as you know, we started using it October 1st, 2015. It's kind of interesting to see how, where it came from, how it evolved, and how we've arrived where we are today. So what is ICD as we know it today? So the World Health Organization defines it as a standard diagnostic tool for epidemiology, health management, and clinical purposes. We use it to monitor and track disease. I think of it really as an epidemiological tool. We're going to be using it to track different trends and patterns and need for more research and focus. And ICD-10, really, I see it as, as something that's definitely epidemiological. I put two bullet points there just for clarification throughout the lecture. There are two forms of ICD. There's ICD-CM and ICD-PCS. ICD-CM is ICD-10. I'll be referring to it as ICD-10 throughout the lecture. And then ICD-PCS, that's your procedure classification system. That's actually something that isn't international. CMS did come up with that, and I won't be touching on that at all today, and that's mostly for hospital reporting with your inpatient procedures. But from a practical point of view, right, this is, this is gauged towards providers and, and, and derm providers. This is how you get paid for your visits. This is the common language that we use to communicate to the insurance what you saw, what you did, and this is a really, really important language to have a working knowledge of.
So why did we transition to ICD-10? Why did they say we needed to? Well, first of all, the rest of the world was already on ICD-10, as you noted from that previous slide, for a number of years. So there was a need to all get on the same page, again, for disease tracking impl uh, implications with that, but also to improve public health, to be able to, in theory, better detect insurance fraud, um, more accurate reimbursement rates, and what I like to call QAQC, quality assurance, quality control. The idea is that if we have this universal coding language that we're all using, we're going to, in theory, de uh, deliver better care, have a more accurate uh, model. So these are, uh, this is just a side-by-side -side comparison of ICD-9 versus ICD-10. I know that this is a review, but ICD-9 has had the 14,000 codes, only three to five digits, no placeholders, no severity codes, and absolutely no laterality. And that's a big thing that we'll be talking about in the coming slides. And as you know, with ICD-10, there are a lot more codes to use. I'm sure you're all familiar with the amount of codes uh, that you're working with. And then there's also the larger code, much more expanded, and they've also really stressed laterality. As I've noted there, over 40% of the codes in ICD-10 stress if it's right or left. So in some ways in dermatology, we're actually at quite an advantage because unlike our, our colleagues in orthopedics and things, they're, they're really worrying about that laterality much more. This is also a pictorial uh, that also shows that ICD-9 versus ICD-10 format. As you'll notice, they have that extension code at the end, also uh, a code to indicate the severity as well. It's important to know that they just didn't pull out this new code structure out of the air or what they were going to include or how specific they were going to get. When they created this new ICD-10, they had it based on a foundation of 21 clinical concepts, things that you'll see throughout clinical practice. And some of the main ones that you'll see used in dermatology is your site, which side it's on, laterality, how severe is it, what's the cause, what's the agent, and is it acute or is it a chronic issue? And the majority of the codes that you're seeing out there right now will utilize two to three of those clinical concepts. So you're going to see the pressure ulcer on the right elbow stage two. It tells you what type of ulcer it is, where it's located, and the degree of severity. So this is kind of tongue-in-cheek to keep you guys all awake. Um, so where can you find your ICD-10 codes? I tell folks, go to Mars, listen to You Can't Touch Us Backwards, do anything you can to find your ICD-10 codes because they can be quite overwhelming. Uh, they can be quite, quite uh, a journey to understand and to learn to be able to communicate that universal language. But seriously, where can you find your ICD-10 codes? You want to go to a reliable source. You want to go to a resource that has the most up-to-date, accurate information. But these are some resources that you can use. The majority of electronic medical records out there do have a section where you can look up your coding. There are websites, of course, as I've listed here. Our national, our state, our specialty societies generally have a wealth of knowledge to be able to communicate to you uh, the ways to most accurately code. And of course, as we know, with the implementation of coding, there are a lot of fee-for-service websites, consultants that offer services to be able to give you the most accurate coding that you can and to also help implement continual changes. But again, as we open this conversation talking about, a lot of those EMRs and websites may not always be accurate. And again, as we started with, you are responsible for the most um, accurate coding that you can. So this is the resource that I encourage everybody to use. This is the official 2016 updated edition, and there are two actual uh, index 
uh, pieces that you can go to. There's an alphabetical and then there's a tabular. And what's essentially different about those is that you use one to supplement the other. So it's very common to have a condition, you're not sure what the code is, you look it up in the alphabetical index, and then you verify it in the tabular index. I did list the link here, and it is available in the handout. This is a great addition, and it's a PDF, so it's very easy to navigate. And this is your most reliable resource. They can be, it can be dense. Uh, it's, it's multiple pages. The manual is, is quite large. So AAD, et cetera, other uh, societies have specific manuals that are spe uh, specialty-specific that you can use to be able to hone in on your most commonly used codes. But again, remember, not everything uh, is on something like the crosswalk or some of these more condensed specialty-specific documents. So this is a great resource. There's also some things that are throughout these manuals, the website that I mentioned, and it's essentially following the directions. You just need to know where to look to find your codes. So you'll see a number of different code clues. Excludes one versus excludes two. Includes, see, see also, code first. These are essentially small little directions to let you know how to best code. For example, excludes one. That uh, phrase there means that you cannot have two conditions coded at once. Two great examples is ichthyosis vulgaris. You can't code congenital ichthyosis vulgaris and acquired ichthyosis vulgaris. They'll have an excludes one notation there to let you know that you can't code those at the same time. Excludes two means that they may be actually separate entities that you can code separately. So keloids for acne, they'll have an excludes two that says acne, but that keloids is excludes two, that you can code a keloid at the same time as acne. So it's a lot of just following the directions. There are some notations and brackets and parentheses that may require you to actually look up the longhand for, uh, term of the code. For instance, with uh, Grover's disease, it's very difficult to actually find Grover's disease. You need to go to transient acantholytic dermatosis, and then in the brackets you'll see Grover's disease. And parentheses as well will give you a little bit more of a detailed version of which code to use. So this is an ARS question for you if you have those little keypads out there. Which of the following is not a major component of ICD-10? A, comorbid diagnoses, B, sequela code, C, laterality, D, specificity, or E, sensitivity. Great, wonderful, wonderful, exactly. Uh, sensitivity, exactly, is not a major component of ICD-10. In fact, these are the major components of ICD-10. You have your laterality, your specificity, your comorbid diagnoses, your sequela codes, and your combination codes. So these are the major focuses of ICD-10 as, as the codes have been implemented. The first one I want to talk to you about is laterality. And laterality essentially means that a specific side of the body is affected. As we talked about when we uh, began the presentation, ICD-9 did not have a focus on laterality. It was uh, something that really was universal. It didn't distinguish if it was left or right. So laterality is a big part of ICD-10. It's important to note, and I get this question all the time, well, how do I tell them that the acne is on the left cheek and not the right cheek? How do I tell them that the psoriasis is on the left elbow and not the right elbow? It's important for you to know that laterality doesn't deal specifically with a lot of the skin eruptions. It will deal a lot with skin lesions, skin cancers, and growths. And it's going to make sh you need to make sure that you document your laterality 
um, in your documentation to reflect what it is in the coding set as well. As I mentioned before, we are really fortunate because we have a lot of these different eruptions and skin rashes. We don't have to code laterality for those, but of course we do have to code laterality when we're dealing with abscesses, basal cells, squamous cell, and melanoma. Our counterparts in other specialties are not so fortunate. However, of course, never say never. There is one caveat, and we'll talk about that in a second. So these are some examples of laterality within ICD-10. ICD-9, as you can see with the first example, had one universal code that specified the basal cell was on the arm. Any arm, either arm, it didn't matter. And as you can see with ICD-10, they now get into breaking it down into your left and right arm. Melanoma has a similar example uh, with the left and the right leg, but again, you have to be careful. There would be a notation in that manual to let you know that this is not the place to code melanoma in situ because there is a distinct and different code set for that. The last example I have here is a, is a pertinent one. And as I was preparing to help my office transition into ICD-10 the first time, I came across this, and, and it's, it's actually quite, quite a caveat. So when you look at the coding for abscess of the eyelid from ICD-9, you'll see that it has that standard 373.13 code. But then when you go to addressing an, abs um, an abscess on the eyelid, for instance, you'll see that it has right and left. Then it also has upper and lower. What's interesting is there are a lot of areas of anatomy that have an upper and lower. And it's interesting, as we go along, I'll show you a couple examples. Not only do you need to be worried about laterality, but there are some areas where you're going to even need to get more granular. You're going to actually need to specify upper and lower. So that's something you're going to want to be aware of beyond just left versus right. So that does bring us to the next component of ICD-10, which is specificity and granularity. I love this diagram because it really hones in on the, the concept of granularity. ICD-9 was something that was much more broad. You had a generalized coding set to be able to specify what you saw. But when you get down to ICD-10, you have more of that granular, more detailed meat of, of what you saw. And I think this is a great representation of, of where ICD-10 is going with specificity. So again, this is the time where you need to be as detailed as possible. It's no longer acceptable to be able to just code psoriasis or acne. You have to be able to say, is it guttate? Is it plaque? Is it acne vulgaris, et cetera? And oftentimes, within these ICD-10 codes, you're going to note that not only the type, but also sometimes the cause is something that you'll need to look into coding as well. And a couple of examples that I put up there, if they have a drug eruption, you're going to need to reference in that manual alongside the original code for a drug rash, the actual culprit if it's known. And the same thing with psoriasis, as I mentioned, coding the specific type of psoriasis. This is the time to be as specific as you can. And that last bullet there, if they have an abscess and you know that they are prone, or, or, um, uh, prone to chronic MRSA, having the code to actually code the bacteria would be appropriate as well. These are some examples of how specific and how granular the new ICD-10 codes get. When we were working with ICD-9, if you had atopic dermatitis, as you all know, that was the 691.8. But at this point, they're going down to neurodermatitis, flexural eczema, infantile eczema, uh, denoting age, denoting location. Again, reflecting those 21 clinical concepts that we talked about a few moments ago, they're not only going to be looking for those clinical concepts, but they're also going to be looking for location, et cetera, as we talked about with laterality. Another example, allergic contact dermatitis. I used to just love being able to write the 692.9. And now you're going to have to, if it's known, really dig into the meat of that coding section and code it to the most um, specific code as possible.
So remember, we had just touched upon the caveat. I had said, be careful. Not only will you have to look out for laterality, but you may need to look for something a little deeper, whether it be upper or lower, et cetera. But what's in interesting is, for the first example with basal cell, as you see with that old ICD-9, 173.31 was a basal cell on the face, anywhere on the face. It could be the chin, it could be the cheek, it could be the nose, it could be the forehead, anywhere. Now with ICD-10, they have a specific code for basal cell on the nose. But what's interesting is, you don't get into actually what anatomic location on the nose it is. We know there are some really important anatomic markers on the nose. They don't say basal cell of the crease, the tip, um, not even the left or the right side, but it's just generally nose. And the same thing with basal cell on the chin. That C44.319, that actually applies to the chin, but in ICD-10 it also applies to jaw, preauricular, cheeks, both sides. So it's actually not as specific as you would expect. So it's really, really important to know your codes, but also know which specific code sets may actually require you to get a bit more detailed. The last example of that trend was basal cell of the lip. Here we go, there's an upper and there's a lower lip. Based on that example that I gave you a few slides back, we were talking about upper and lower eyelid, uh, left versus right. Here with basal cell on the lip, there's only a code for upper and low, um, there is a code, excuse me, for uh, the, uh, there isn't a code for upper and lower or left or right lip, it's just the lip. So to communicate that point a little bit better, it's just the lip. It can be upper, it can be lower, it can be the left, it can be the right. So it's not as specific as you would expect, but remember our eyelid example, which did get into that more granular detail. So this is just being kind of tongue in cheek, but I did find myself asking, can you be specific and not be lateral? Or can you be lateral and still not be specific? And it came to mind that if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, does it still make a sound? I mean, I'm getting very philosophical uh, with our ICD-10, so. Uh, these are a couple of specifically humorous codes uh, that I found, just to bring some humor to the lecture, because it can be quite dry. Um, as I mentioned with the coding, you can get into all sorts of specifically humorous codes. That first one, as I mentioned, once I finish this, I know I'll have a few more gray hairs uh, that I'll need to cover. Um, anybody have a translation for that second one out there? So that's Picker's acne, actually. And if you go into the code set and you look underneath that code, you will have that uh, small saying there. I added in uh, clam diggers itch. I am from Massachusetts, the greater Boston area. We actually see that quite a bit. Uh, the burn due to water skis on fire, as Lauren mentioned, uh, that's an ode to my supervising physician, Dr. Rockoff. He's mentioned that code a couple of times in his, his, uh, uh, his pieces in his uh, articles that he writes for. And then last but not least, uh, the no-show to the appointment. That's one that I'm sure you guys will see quite a bit. So comorbid diagnoses, very important to know that these are conditions or disorders that may not directly affect the, uh, the person's health at that time, but it's something that's in the background. Many times these have their own ICD-9 codes, though they may not actually be affecting that patient at the, that very moment. And you'll note that they're designated by a Z code that I mentioned there on the slide. So these are some helpful comorbid diagnosing coding pearls. You'll see anything from history of basal cell, squamous cell, history of isotretinoin use, long-term current use of antibiotics. The one that I actually found to be very helpful is the uh, good old seven, 
9.899. That is the one that you can use to replace the V58.69 on your old lab orders. That was the one from ICD-9 if you were filling out a lab order to send them for their pregnancy tests and their lipids and their CBC, you could use that coding to justify why you're ordering it for your isotretinoin patients, so that's a helpful one as well. I'll be honest, it is uh, controversial if these codes are billable on their own. I can give you a personal example or two where just in error I had had a Z code on there and didn't finish my thought and, and put in uh, an additional code like I should have. My billing quarter came up to me and said I actually had a couple of denials. You can't build this Z code on its own. Did you forget to add something? So it is controversial if you can just build these Z codes. For now I would use them more to supplement good documentation. So these are some really great comorbid diagnoses for everybody in the room. Your stressful work schedules, and I'm sure you're all looking forward to going back to after you leave here today. Uh, parental overprotection, sleep deprivation, and the last one, which that wonderful guy on the right does not experience any of, uh, lack of relaxation and leisure. He's uh, my four-year-old pup, my terrier, and he lives the life, so he does not ever, ever need that code. Uh, sequelae codes. These are diagnoses resulting from previous infection, injury, or illness. It's most commonly seen in the context of infection. So there's a really great example up here that also lends itself to being specific. The first thing that we tell folks is making sure that you code what they have in the here and now. So if you do see somebody that has scabies, you code them for scabies, and two weeks later, if you see them and they don't have scabies, but they have the post-scabiotic puritis, it's going to be really important to actually not code scabies, but code first the actual problem that they're having, which is the generalized puritis, and then you can actually add a sequelae code to designate that this puritis is from some other type of issue, such as a specific parasitic or infectious agent referencing the scabies. They are going to get more specific and they will hone in onto these details as the uh, new coding year arrives because they're going to be looking to make sure your documentation matches exactly what you coded for. So it's going to be really important. Also for viral exanthems, if a patient comes in and has a viral exanthem, two weeks later they're seeing you with post-viral desquamation. You're not going to want to code the viral exanthem. You're going to want to code the actual desquamation and then code the sequelae code afterward. Uh, combination codes, these are great. They do help identify that there is more than one problem going on. And the examples I gave here are eczema herpeticum, uh, KS, and as also as well skin complications from diabetes. So these are codes that are going to be able to identify that there is more than one component frequently going on, whether it be with the skin and with infection. Uh, use additional uh, codes notations. These are also just to supplement good coding. So if you do, as we mentioned in the previous example, code an impetigo or code an abscess, if you do know this patient is prone to MRSA and you have a high suspicion of that, you can use one of these notations to help reference that. As well, if you see a patient off and on for a condyloma, it is helpful to communicate that there is a papillomavirus that's associated with it, for instance, if you have confirmed it via biopsy. Uh, these are other uh, examples of use additional codes. Uh, as exactly, if you have somebody that comes in and has a drug rash and you know that it was from the Keflex you gave them a couple of weeks ago, you're going to want to code that generalized skin eruption to drugs, but you're also going to want to document which specific drug class it was if you know it. So again, that's just a good uh, example of making sure you have adequate coding 
And this is where the seventh character comes in. And I get a lot of questions about that as well. And it's been, a lot, it's been the butt of a lot of jokes, actually, in a lot of coding articles, where how many times can you see somebody for their water skis being on fire? Or how many times can you see them for this or that? This seventh character is not how many times you see them for this one you know, crazy complaint, but it's how, at what stage of the visit are you in? Are you in the initial encounter, the subsequent encounter, the sequelae visit? So it's very common with those codes, you may need to add a seventh character, especially when it has infection, injury, or illness, to document where you are in seeing them. So it's a very important thing to know when you're using these huge additional codes, uh, codes notation. So another ARS here. Which of the following is used in ICD-10 coding when the provider's documentation is lacking detailed elements of disease state? A, other, B, unspecified, C, unknown, D, excludes, or E, use the X placeholder. <clears throat> Great, wonderful. So that's going to be the next portion of ICD-10 we're going to be talking about. Again, that's something that I get quite a bit of questions about. Do I code other, unspecified, should I not use them at all, and what's the state of, of these code sets? So other is when the ICD-10 code does not exist for what you're coding. There isn't a code that exists for it. There's no other way to document exactly what you saw. So I have two examples up here. You have a patient that comes in and sees you for Coxsackie, and in two to three weeks they come in and they have that post-viral onychomedesis. Well, if you look into your code set reference, there isn't a code that's specific for onychomedesis, but there is a code that, that captures that onychomedesis diagnosis when using the L60.8, the other nail disorders. So that would capture that term because there isn't anything uh, currently that identifies it on its own. And the same thing, if a patient comes in after using corticosteroids on the face, et cetera, and they have a steroid-induced rosacea, unfortunately, there isn't a code for steroid-induced rosacea, but there is the L71.8 that says other rosacea, and you could use that code to specify it, as long as you make sure that you use good documentation in your notes. Unspecified. Uh, unspecified, you can see in two distinct examples. One, unspecified is used when you didn't use the proper documentation to designate if the basal cell was on the left side or the right side, or you didn't take the time to in your documentation specify exactly what type of contact dermatitis it was. You would choose the unspecified for that. Or the second instance is you truly don't know what's going on. You don't know the cause of their urticaria. You truly do not know the causative agent. Again, good supporting documentation will help justify your use of, this, of these codes. However, everything that is out there that I have read is that we're going to be seeing a lot less of these other and unspecified codes as we get into the second half of 2016, and we'll talk more about that. So know about them, use them when appropriate, use good documentation, but try to avoid them unless you absolutely need them. So I wanted to clarify another thing. I get a lot of questions about, well, do I use not elsewhere classifiable or not otherwise specified? I can't find these codes when I'm on the crosswalk. It's important for you to know that the NEC versus the NOC, those are actually list abbreviations. Those are index abbreviations. You're not going to go down a code set and actually find not, other, not elsewhere classifiable or not otherwise specified. These are actually going to be in those larger manuals to help point you in the direction of using whether it be an other or an unspecified code. So you're really going to be using either other or 
or unspecified. And what makes it a little bit tricky is the code that's for unspecified has the word otherwise in it. So I get a lot of folks uh, just asking if they should be using these or, or what's the proper terminology. So going forward in terms of with ICD-10, I think it's really important to be able to utilize ICD-10 the best that you can. You have to have a working knowledge competency of the other areas of coding as well, and we'll talk about those next. Um, a quick review before we start. The majority of this is very common terminology when you're using coding and, and when you're looking things up, but this is just a quick review. You have your CPT, which is obviously your current procedural terminology that refers to procedures and things that you would do in the office. Your global period is that defined length of time that's attached to an actual procedure. You have your modifiers, which folks are very familiar with, that are attached to procedures, EM codes, depending on the context that they're used. And then, of course, uh, the evaluation and management level of service is used quite a bit, and then medical decision making. Okay, so the first thing we'll talk about is CPT and global periods. The majority of what I'll be speaking about is medical dermatology. Uh, I do medical dermatology in my practice. These are the modifier, uh, the, these are the global periods and modifiers going forward that I use the most. We won't have a ton of, of um, major kind of mo 